Well, one of the uh, strangest uh, truths of the Christian faith is a sinner finds uh, salvation by way of sorrow. A man or woman in whom the Spirit of God is working will first be made sad. If, like me, you're resting on Jesus Christ today, you must have experienced some sense of sorrow over sinfulness. Now, we're all different. Uh, the degree to which we uh, feel this will vary from sinner to sinner. But it will be present. And not only will it be present during your conversion, but the Christian life which follows will frequently be punctuated by times of sadness as we, as we uh, fall into sin. In the passage we just read, the mentions of funerals, death, sadness, rebukes which shock people, they're all negative, they're all unpleasant things we prefer not to experience. But the main character in this book, he understands that positive things can come from negative things. And although lots of the advice in Ecclesiastes would be good, the world would be better off if people took its advice, even unbelievers. But the important message that is built in to the lines of Scripture here is that God uses all kinds of unpleasant experiences to bring us to a place of salvation. Well, the first thing we're going to consider today is the benefit of going to the house of mourning. You see that in verse uh, 2 there. And then I want us to go on to think more about this surprising idea that sadness can lead to salvation. And I want to talk about rebuke, not advising people in the world to behave themselves or anything like that. We're going to consider the gospel message as a rebuke. And we know that it is the gospel which is the means by which God saves people. So here's the first statement I want to make. Funerals are better than parties. Funerals are better than parties. That's what it says in verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. I think most of us here will have experienced both types of situation. We've been to houses where people are usually dressed in, in black. It's, uh, it's subdued. And here and there you spot people and their eyes are red because they've been shedding tears. Someone we all know has been taken out of this world and then we have to find a way to come to terms with their sudden non-existence. 
And we've been to houses where the opposite is true. We've uh, seen people dressed more brightly. There's uh, noise. Uh, if anyone has red eyes, it's normally because of uh, raucous laughter. The people are in a buoyant mood. And it seems pretty clear which one of those people would rather attend. Kohelet, the character in here, disagrees. This man has experienced both types of occasions himself, but he insists people are better off going to a wake or a funeral than going to a party. Why? The end of the verse gives us our answer. The funeral is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. The funeral marks an, uh, the, the end of life. Now if this was only about um, someone we know dying, nothing to do with us, well there'd be no lesson there for, for anyone else. The preacher here makes the point which people don't even want to think about. The other person dying, that coffin, does have something to do with us because the exact same thing is going to happen to us. In fact, this is why I use this verse at funerals. I use this in a short uh, funeral message. Now, I am aware I've already spoken to you about the topic of dying and death while we've gone through Ecclesiastes. You might think that, well, if you've already preached about death, then there's no need to go through all that again. But if Kohelet has decided to mention it 10 or 20 times, then it's certainly... It has to come up a number of times in the preaching if we're trying to reflect what the Word of God says. If we're going to seriously study the Word of God, we have to confront the things that the Bible emphasises. And he does, he mentions, uh, Kohelet, he mentions death a lot, and I'm glad he does. But that doesn't mean, folks, that I've fully come to terms myself with the thought of death. I might say I, I am, but from time to time, something will happen. It could be, it could be someone, a relative, or someone in a church situation who's dying or has died. It could be someone on the television. I don't even know what has been part of my whole life on television. It could be, it could be something else. It could be a thought that occurs to me. And so occasionally I'm shocked all over again at this incredible thing that you can, at some point in the future, you can suddenly not be in this world. Let me give you an example uh, of that. Uh, Karen and I were at a funeral, maybe last year, the year before, and the lady who had died uh, was a friend of ours from the previous church. Uh, I, I wasn't particularly upset, you know, we hadn't seen her for a 
a fair number of years, although we, we, we you know we loved it. Her death wasn't a surprise. She was properly ancient, so um, that wasn't a shock. And because we were persuaded she was a believer, we had peace. We had peace because of the hope of resurrection to eternal life. But something the preacher said stunned me just a little bit. He held up the order of service and pointed to the photo of old Nell on the front. And he said to us, your face is going to be on this one day. Your face is going to be on there. Wow, well, yeah, this wasn't just about Nell. This was about me too. If you have a look in the first verse of our reading, there's a contrast made. Now I'm going to paraphrase it, but try to follow it if you can. Verse 1. In the same way as a good reputation is better than valuable ointment or jewels, so the events surrounding a death are better to witness than the events surrounding the arrival of a new baby. So it's the same thought in that phase. When a woman gives birth to a child, it's a time of great joy. And obviously I speak from experience. However, if you were to, if you were to go somewhere and see uh, some relative or some friend and give them birth and everyone's joyful and yet that same person, if you saw that woman, that mother, at some point on her deathbed, you, that would be a time of sorrow. Yet, we're advised here that it's somehow better to be at the sad event than the happy event. Now, although it's proper for us to think about these things as, as Christians, you know, yeah, we need to we need to just face up to that harsh reality about death. That the lesson today is not applicable to us as much. After all, our attitude is different. If, friend, you have an abundance of faith, you'll be looking forward to going. You'll be looking forward to it. You'll be You'll be saying, not long now, and I get to go. Few of us have such faith. But the real lesson here today is for the lost people of the world. Because they do need to be confronted with the reality. This reality of death. So they can have some sense knocked into them. So they can stop messing around in life. And think, where am I going to be? One million years from today, where will I be? Where will I be living? Now, sure, many people have given thought to their spiritual condition and their eternal destination, but their hearts are so rebellious against God, they prefer to think about something else, anything else at all. They run away from the issue. They drown out the thoughts with just furious activity 
Some of them just listen to loud music all day long just to try and keep those nagging thoughts at bay. For such people, stillness is intolerable. These people, friends, would rather go to the house of feasting. They want to go to parties. And sadly, there's very little chance that in that sort of environment, they're going to have any thoughts about death and eternity. And what's worse than that? That very environment is filled with people just like them. People trying to escape reality. Here's the second claim that's made from our passage. It's that sadness can lead to salvation. Sadness can lead to salvation. When I'm preaching uh, an evangelistic message to the lost, let's say it's in this church, for example. What do you think I want to see? Some of you might think, well, brother... I'd say, okay, you're preaching the gospel, the good news of the gospel. I accept. I expect you want to see people filled with joy. You want them to go home feeling great. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If someone walked out of here unconverted but happy, I'd be dreadfully disappointed. What do I want to see when I warn them about the danger they're in? I want them to be sad. I want them to be miserable. The best case scenario for me is that they would break down crying like a baby because it's just possible that that could be a sign that the Holy Spirit is about to save them. Have a look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. We know it's, it's sometimes good to have a cry. Sometimes you'll say about someone, uh, they, they, they had a good cry and then they felt better. You know, it was all building up and then they let it all out and then they, they were okay then. But if a, a sinful man or woman went through such an experience but remained in the same spiritual darkness, well, what use? What use was, was all that? They could have been crying because the dogs just died. They get over it. They move on. They buy another dog. This is nothing about that. The type of sorrow referred to here is sorrow over sin. It comes about because of a realisation in the heart that a person is a sinner. Instead of thinking, well, I just made mistakes like everyone else. He sees that his transgressions amounts to a breaking of the law of an almighty God. The fact everyone else does the same things no longer matters to him. None of that lessens his guilt he understands he's been opposing God in his life through all his pleasure-seeking. He's a guilty sinner. 
And worse than that, he understands what God must do to a guilty sinner. And all that, friends, can bring him into a low place, uh, a kind of depression that only conviction of sin can cause. Like I said earlier, one man will just feel bad, another might cry over his sin. It's just that if God chooses to give a particularly piercing vision of the person's sin, then that will bring that will bring tears. So there's someone crying their eyes out over the sin. At that point, it could go one of two ways. It could still go one of two ways. Men have been brought to that low condition before, into full realization of their sinfulness, but haven't repented. If you look later in Hebrews chapter 12, you'll read about Esau, and it describes that he was in tears over his sin, but it didn't lead to repentance. A man could go that way. He could put the experience behind him. He could bury the feelings of guilt. He could immerse himself in the world and all its wonderful allurements. But praise God, it can go the other way too. And it has in the past, and it still does, and it will continue to. When God is working in a man with the intention to save him, he doesn't simply induce a sense of grief in the man. He gives something else. He gives to him the gift of repentance. And when you have this grief, and then God stares in this repentance, what is created is godly grief. Godly grief. It says here in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. This is a godly mixture, not a carnal one. Sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life, which leads to gladness. By sadness of face can be brought conviction of sin, and the face is made glad. A doomed sinner has been transformed from a living death into a living life, if you like. The sinner has travelled through sorrow and arrived at his destination, which is salvation. God withheld repentance from Esau, and without that ingredient, all the tears of Esau would get him nowhere. And this, friends, is why at first I want to be the cause of misery to lost men and women I love them so much I want to be the bringer of sorrow to their hearts but with a more intense desire I want this sorrow to be of a godly kind I want their tears to drive them to ask you or ask me that marvellous question 
What must I do to be saved? <clears throat> well, that leads us on to this point of the rebuke of the gospel. The rebuke of the gospel. When the gospel is preached to the people of this world, it can be thought of as a harsh rebuke. Now, I know what the word means. The word means it's uh, good news, a declaration of of um, good tidings but when we say the gospel it can include the things that are necessary to lead up to it so for example it's no use me declaring you know, salvation from sin to someone if they don't know what I'm talking about or they don't think they are a sinner or they don't believe in the concept of sin because I've seen that as well. <clears throat> so, let me explain what I mean by rebuke. Obviously, when we rebuke people through the gospel, it doesn't mean that we go up and say, you're such a sinner. How can you be so sinful? Why can't you be more like me? That's, that's just, that's awful. That's the gospel of a devil or a religious hypocrite. It's not the gospel. That's not what rebuke is. The, the, the rebuke of the gospel shows them they fail to keep the standards of the Almighty. We hold up God and his laws as the standards by which men are assessed. The gospel rebukes the actions, the words, even the very thoughts of men. And it warns them that if they just carry on, if they just carry on as they are, it will all end in tragedy. But all that is leading up to the heart of the gospel message, which is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He offered up himself as a sacrifice. A sacrifice which all those sacrificial animals in the past were emblems of. And through God's acceptance of that sacrifice, men and women could have their sins washed away forever. Oh, it's a, it's a great story. It's a powerful story. It's, it explains why we sin. It explains how our sin can be dealt with. It explains even how death itself can be reversed in the raising of people from the dead to eternal life. This explains the very meaning of life. Who can fail? to listen and take to heart such a powerful message of salvation. Who can possibly ignore that? Almost everyone. Almost everyone. Listen to what the Saviour himself says about the general response to the Gospel. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate for Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to eternal life and only a few find it. The road to eternal life is narrow and not easy to walk down. Very few people do. Which is why today I'm addressing a congregation of this size rather than the whole population of Norris Green. 
Most of the people who hear the gospel, they continue to walk down that wide and easy road which leads to their destruction. Why should people listen to the rebukes of the word of God? Why should they take notice of a gospel preacher? The friends don't, even the successful ones. No one in their entire family does. They seem to be okay. As we come into the spring, we were starting to plan evangelism, uh, outdoor evangelism. And although our hope is to see people come to Christ, our expectation, based on what Jesus told us, is that <laughs> very few will tolerate the rebuke of the gospel. Most will ignore us. A few will insult us. There's never, there's usually never a complete absence of interest. It could be one person in a hundred or one in a thousand. <clears throat> it says in verse five, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And sure enough, every day, God is plucking his people, his elect people, out of their sinful lives and making them his own. By the grace of God, they hear this rebuke. They understand. They need to get right with God. They begin to believe that Christ Jesus died for them. They hear the gospel promise that all who come to Jesus will be welcomed. They plead for mercy and God gives it. <coughs> the other people in this world don't like this. <coughs> in repentance, the world sees that they've just lost a man. They've just lost a man. Their husband, their father, their brother, their friend, their drinking buddy has gone over to the dark side and become a Bible basher. That's what they say. <laughs> they want him to come back to the laughter, the mirth, the, the feasting and the singing. Lord knows how many times they've asked me, why can't we have the old Paul back? Well, a farmyard blasphemous drunkard. Yeah, that. Can we have that back? Look at verse 6 though. It says, The laughter of these people is compared to the burning of thorns under a pot. So the cooking something, you've got, these, got this fire going. You might not be an outdoor person, so I'll, 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 I'll explain it a bit. If you dry out plants like bramble, you find that the thorny stems, they burn very furiously. They don't have to make a noise as well. But it's very short-lived. The stems of this thorny bush are reduced to ash in no time. And this is like the people of this world. The ones who think the Bible's rubbish are called fools. They make a lot of noise, but they're soon gone. The people have lost one of their own to God. But this man who did take note of the gospel stands now in the ranks of God's people.
Proverbs 15 and 31 says, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. That's you, by the way, the wise. It's better to be rebuked if it leads to salvation. It's better to feel sorrow if it leads to deliverance. It's better to be at a funeral if it triggers a process which leads to your redemption. Today we're going to um, share bread and wine in this ceremony which you might call the Lord's Table. And this is nothing less than a funeral. It's a, it's a kind of funeral. Jesus tells us to do this to remind each other about his death. It says, not all those other essential things, his resurrection, his ascension and so on. Jesus wants to remember him dying and being dead. A kind of, it's a kind of funeral commemoration that we're involved in. And I've, I've said this uh, before to some of you that uh, some hymn writers, uh, they deliberately, deliberately chose mournful tunes to accompany their hymns. Now, modern day, uh, modern, the modern day church tries usually to avoid anything which sounds sad. And I think that's down to uh, a gap in teaching in the church. If you've managed to listen to this message from Kohel today, from God today, then you'll get it. It's through the temporary feelings of sorrow those hymns cause that we can then immediately experience greater joy as we Think then about our Saviour, who resolved the problem of sin. Through sadness, our faces are made glad. Do you see? And that should be our attitude when we gather around the Lord's table. On the one hand, we're meant to consider our Lord on the cross. He was a man of sorrows. And now we see him experiencing sorrow that we can't even imagine. We're partly sad for him, but we also recognise he did that because of our sin. He was suffering all that anguish because of us. Today, if you like, we go to the house of mourning. But after thinking about Christ's death, I encourage you then to take your gaze away from Calvary and then consider Jesus as the risen, exalted Lord, victorious over death, cancelling sin and giving eternal life to all who repent and put faith in him. Sadness of face, then gladness of heart. May that be the experience of all of us today who partake in these things. Amen.